Welcome into the Living Room Disciple Podcast. So we said we weren't releasing any new episodes during the month of April, and we changed our minds. But we have a really good reason for that. Today we have the honor of talking with Dr. Scott McKnight. Dr. McKnight has been so influential in my life and my faith, and I know Phil would say the same thing. His, his writing is prolific, and the way he, he talks about the Bible and the New Testament is profound. So today we have the honor of diving into his new book on the book of Revelation. It's called Revelation for the Rest of Us. It is an incredible read, and you should pick it up. Today we're going to dive into that book and see how to incorrectly read the book of Revelation, but also how to correctly read it as a guide to discipleship and spiritual formation in our modern age. So welcome into the Living Room Disciple Podcast, where discipleship finds a home. Well, I am incredibly excited to introduce Dr. Scott McKnight, uh, who is hanging out with us today. Dr. McKnight, or excuse me, Scott, thank you for being here. <laughs> thank you for inviting me. Good to be with you, Phil and Nick. Yes. We are incredibly excited to have you here. And um, if, if I, I just want full transparency, uh, Nick, you've been going through Scott's new book on Revelation. Yes. And he sent me cliff notes, so I'm almost <laughs> caught up. <laughs> but, but Scott, I'd love to start the conversation here. I grew up in a time um, in which the, the book of Revelation was understood as us thinking about the future, making predictions about what was going to happen, and then sometimes making movies about that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and trying to trying to put trying to put the pieces together. I grew up in the left behind world, and and that was what I understood. That's what I knew. And so as I kind of matured in my faith, I I distanced myself from that book because it was confusing, and and I didn't think we were getting it right. Tell us a little bit, like just high level overview. How should I be looking at the Book of Revelation today, and and understanding that? Well, Phil, you're right. There's a lot of people who feel this way about the book of Revelation, almost like it's an alienated book. And it hmm. almost like they've been abused by this book. Uh, they just feel like it's so bizarre. It can't be true. 100%. And many of us grew up with uh, speculative predictions that have proven to be wrong. And I often tell my right. students, every one of the predictions that I've ever heard have been wrong. At some point, we need to change what we're doing. Uh, but the, the, the big idea is the book was written in the first century for seven first century churches on how to live as followers of Jesus when the Roman Empire is dominating the scene. Hmm. That's what the book is about. It's about the Christian life in the first century, in the context of Roman Empire. Um, so that doesn't is, sound all that different from the other epistles then. Well, yeah, this isn't an epistle. This is, a, this is apocalyptic literature. Mm. Uh, but in some ways, it is, uh, there's, there's something that has happened that makes the book of Revelation and its message of discipleship unlike anything we see in the New Testament. The closest it gets hmm. is some of the sayings of Jesus. But Paul's attitude toward Rome 
in Romans 13, for instance. Even Peter's attitude toward Rome in 1 Peter chapters 2 and 3 are quite unlike what we find in the book of Revelation. So a new Mm. situation has arisen in Western Asia Minor that has led the Apostle John, if he's the author, these things are very difficult to prove. Uh, And I'm not skeptical. It's just that, okay, it says John, but what is that going to do for us? There's a lot Mm. of Johns. Um, And uh, it, it is so much more hostile, in a sense, toward the Roman Empire and suspicious, even cynical of the book of the Roman Empire compared to Paul, who seems to think, you know, if we're good people, we'll get along. And Peter, pretty much Mm -hmm. the same thing. Let's try to do as much good as we can and we'll do better. And John says, Rome is going down. And that's Mm -hmm. a completely different posture. Which is interesting considering Peter's story in the garden and um, literally trying to wage war against Rome, right? Um, so for him to kind of turn around and write a letter that, that sounds a little bit different. Um, yeah. But to go into it another way that, that this is different than Revelation is different than other New Testament books, um, I was really struck by the way that you described imagination and the way that imagination plays in where I, I almost got this idea of, of John is, is writing almost like an, a play that he wants um, to be performed and, and acted out. Um, for the churches to try to not just learn information, but to imagine a, a new world. So what role does imagination play in our formation as Christians in Babylon? Well, that's, that's uh, pretty good, Nick. This is, uh, this is one of the big things that Cody, my co-author, uh, who is a graduate assistant of mine and now is working on his PhD in Australia, but he lives in Canada. Um, we talked about imagination a lot and, and I got to tell you the number of my students who grew up with revelation and found it alienating and, and, you know, not just weird, but, uh, why is it in the Bible almost attitude? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, they were thrilled, uh, or they are thrilled when I start talking about imagination. Here's, here's why John sees things all the time and he sees visions if we are attentive to john and your your point about like like it's like a play that needs to be staged it's it's clearly staged and it needs to be performed by the readers and and so hmm. that part of the staging will will occur as as the book is read to seven in seven different occasions to different churches um, when John starts using images, they are so graphic and so over overwhelming and abounding and flourishing and popping up in all directions that uh, you cannot help but let your mind go to these and try to create them. When I was in sure. college, Tim LaHaye was already at work on his stuff on Revelation. You know, he's a dispensationalist. And, He's pretty big on speculation. I, I don't know. If maybe, maybe Tim LaHaye is not with us anymore. I, I'm not sure. Uh, but he has he had a little commentary on Revelation that Zondervan published, in which he he had someone draw the different figures in the Book of Revelation. And I remember, even as a college student, I mean, I thought it's weird to do this, but it kind of ruins the images. 
because I have images in my head as I as I watch or read John describe the dragon and the woman or mm -hmm. the beast from the sea, the beast from the land, which we translate as wild things. Um, sure. All these different images, I have images in my head of what they look like. And no artist seems to get near them. It's sort of like watching the Chronicles of Narnia or one of the mm -hmm. movie as a movie when you've read the book and you've been there in your mind, and now they've ruined it for you by and and stolen it from you, because now sure. when you think of Lucy, you think of this girl, or or mm -hmm. uh, right. Peter, and you think of this boy. Uh, in the, in the Book of Revelation is designed to draw the listeners and readers into those images and let those images do work. That's all about imagination. And John uses his own imagination. And as John sees things, I, I, want, I want this to be emphasized in my classes. John sees things, but when he comes out and describes them, he cannot avoid sounding like the prophets of Israel. Mm -hmm. yeah. So... So the, the actual writing down of what he saw becomes an interpretive move of bringing in language from the Old Testament of the yeah. prophets to interpret these things. And when he does that, John is amazingly uh, dexterous at using Old Testament images without ever quoting the Old Testament hardly. Hmm. It's just all these images piled in. It's kaleidoscopic. Yeah in its uh, right. magnitude and vision. And I think as we read the book of Revelation, we'll do ourselves so much better if we read it and we just sort of pause, close our eyes or look up to the ceiling and start thinking, what, what, what does this look like to me? And then hmm. read the next little scene and say, what does this look like now to me? And, but uh, Scott, how do I know if I'm getting it right? <laughs> I, it's a, it's imagination. It's fiction mm -hmm. in that sense. You mm -hmm. don't. It's not about getting it right. It's letting the author's uh, language impact you, so that you go mm -hmm. where he goes, and wow. you will you'll get an image of a dragon. You know, for I me, think, that's Puff the magic dragon. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I think that right there is a it's a huge mindset shift it is. in the way you think about the Book of Revelations, right? Like. You know, I've always understood the book of Revelations as something to be understood. And when I realized I could not understand it, I leaned into, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe in, in early on in Revelations, it kind of says that there's blessing that comes from hearing this, yeah. these yeah. words right aloud. And so I remember one night, uh, you know, I, I, I pastor our home church. And so uh, in, in our home church, I, I had just read the book aloud and I didn't even try to, to even navigate interpreting it or understanding it because I just felt like it was something that was impossible to be understood. Am I approaching that the right way as someone who's handling the scriptures as, as feeling like it's something that really can't be understood? Well, you know, I would say, Phil, it has to be understood. John wouldn't write this if he thought nobody mm -hmm. could understand it. Mm -hmm. uh, but it just depends what you mean by understood and understand. I mean, if you think you're going to figure out everything he's saying, no, mm -hmm. probably not. It takes some expertise to catch all his Old Testament allusions and echoes mm -hmm. 
and even echoes of stuff that's going on in the Jewish world in apocalyptic literature. I mean, many people think that dragon of Revelation 12 is connected to the snake python in Greco-Roman uh, myths. Um, mm. And that they're not trying to hurt the book. They're just saying, wow, this sounds like this. And you mm -hmm. can't read Revelation 17 about the, whatever word you use, the whore of Babylon, mm -hmm. without seeing all this stuff that she's yeah. wearing and saying and all these all these boats, these ships bringing the stuff in. You're supposed to see all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think that as you let those visions hit you, if you can keep the big picture in mind, you will have a really good understanding and these visions will, uh, and what you see and how you read it and interpret it will contribute to um, a basic understanding of the book. I think, hmm. you know, I don't want to say it's easy to understand, but I think the complexity created by all the people's speculation about the book, which is shaped by one basic idea, and that is, people today are often asking who in the world today is doing what in the characters of the book of Revelation as a fulfillment of prophetic prediction. And as I said earlier, they've been wrong every time. And uh -huh. that shows something. And I would say it this way. They've been partly right most of the time, but they've been totally wrong all the time. And that is, if you start predicting, thinking that, let's say, one of the beasts is Putin, you're probably going to be proven wrong. Yeah. And that's what I mean by totally wrong. But if you see in Putin the activity of a beast-like figure, a wild thing figure, yeah. you're going to be really close to what John wants us to see. Namely, he wants us to see the power of that image of the beast from the sea, the beast from the land as speaking into imperial realities in our world today, in our government, in the nation, our government in the state, our government at the local village level. All those things can be impacted by the way we read the book of Revelation. Hmm. So as we come to these visions and imaginations and even understandings, as you point out, um, what, is, what is the end goal? Um, what is what is John's mission for the churches? What is his calling for us? What what is kind of the point of of this mystical book? Well, you got me tripped up by that word mystical. Um, <laughs> John John wants the believers in seven different churches in Western Asia Minor in the first century to follow Jesus faithfully regardless of what it means for their life, even if mm. it means death. Yeah. And he promises mm. them, if they follow Jesus faithfully, they will end up in the new Jerusalem. Yeah. Mm. And that will bring them confidence and hope and assurance to live each day following the Lamb in the way of the Lamb in the midst of Rome. So I think right. the end goal is is a very Christian life goal. It is not yeah. um, uh, an ability to sit at your newspaper with your coffee in the morning. I guess people still do that. 
instead sure. of just looking, <laughs> looking on Twitter, um, and say, this is that, and I'm sure glad I won't be there during the tribulation. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll be, mm-hmm. I'll escape, and therefore, this is really not for me. That's that yeah. that ruins the book, and it and John would uh, walk away with tears in his eyes uh, if yeah. he knew what people were doing with the book today. And that sounds so much more like Jesus. Like, and and I think that's where there's beauty in in the way that I'm hearing you talk about the book of Revelation and talk about John and his purpose and his intent. And I think one of the things that's happened in multiple areas of, of the church, at least as I've grown up uh, in the church, it, it, you know, it can kind of be symbolized with dispensationalism in the book of Revelation, the, the feeling that there's awkward parts of Christianity, ugly parts of Christianity that we just kind of like distance ourselves from because we don't really know what to do with them. Um, and I think one of the things that I'm seeing more and more is that as, as I'm, I'm learning and as I'm growing, that there's a lot of consistency to the Bible. And so when we have Jesus calling us to live like we're in a new kingdom today and citizens of those new, that new kingdom today, that the, now that I kind of understand that was part of Jesus's message in, in general, I'm seeing that throughout the whole rest of the New Testament. And it sounds like you're saying to some extent that's even in the book of Revelation that John is, is going about with a different genre of literature. Um, he's in, in, going about it in a different way. He's compelling the believers then, and I think we can say the believers now, to persevere and to stay faithful no matter the circumstances. And he gives us a lot of creative imagery to motivate us towards that. Am, am, I, am I on track oh, here, yeah. Scott? I think, I, think you're, I think you're right. I mean, Jesus' statement, you know, I think the earliest version is Mark chapter 8, where he basically says, you know, take up your cross and follow me is the very essence of the book of Revelation. However, yeah. and Jesus' world was was a little closer to John's world than Paul's world in some ways. Jesus' world uh, is Jewish, Galilee, etc., some Judea, Samaria. John's world is Western Asia Minor, maybe 60 years later, two generations. And the environment is so different that instead of just saying, pick up your cross and follow Jesus, he chooses to use apocalyptic literature because of its dynamic imagery and its interpretive powers to shake people up into realizing that this is a cosmic battle that we're in, Mm. that God is going to win. There's a friend of mine in Texas says there's I think it's in the book, too, but I've said it so many times, I don't know where it is. Uh, Randy Harris says, here's how you understand the book of Revelation. God's team wins. Choose your team. Don't be stupid. <laughs> and there's a lot to that about the book yeah. of Revelation. Is it, this, this emphasis on God's mm. team winning is that justice and peace, yeah. wisdom, etc., are going to be established and evil yeah. is going to be eliminated. Um, yes, it uses graphic images. It, it uses some violent imagery. But, you know, I've read that in C.S. Lewis, and I've seen this yeah. in Tolkien, and I, I don't get particularly morally uh, upset by by bad people losing and good people winning because that's that's the moral struggle of life. 
And I think that's what John's doing, but in first century apocalyptic categories. So it, uh, right. it's ramped up in, in its violence and bizarreness. So God's team yeah. and bizarreness. Yeah. So God's team wins. Don't be stupid, but let's be honest. It's a little hard to believe that a story is true, that a slain lamb is more powerful than a mighty dragon. Right. <laughs> um, and I think yeah. myself included, it's, it's really hard for Christians to really get that story in, in their bones as, as you call it, the story of everything. Um, so what does it look like to be shaped by that story? How do we get that story to actually be something we believe and live out? Well, I do think that this requires um, a conversion of imagination, to, to use mm -hmm. language from a book by Richard Hayes. Uh, we do need a conversion of our imagination. And it can only begin if we will soak ourselves in the Gospels and to see that Jesus wins by losing yeah. or wins through losing. Right. And uh, I'm right now finishing up a little study on the Gospel of Mark. And this morning I wrote on Jesus's trial scenes in Mark 14 and 15 before the temple authorities and then before Pilate with, with Peter doing stupid stuff in, this, in the same scene, you know. Yeah. And um, it's that language of, of uh, being tested in the most difficult of circumstances, and Jesus is faithful. He carries on with what he's called to do. He sort of admits who he is and sort of doesn't. You know, Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, you, you the NIV makes it nice. You have said so. Well, that's not what the Greek says. It <laughs> says, you say. And that's not... Uh, Lauren Daigle's you say. It's a completely different you say. <laughs> it is you are saying so or you are saying. Hmm. And he doesn't answer that question. But Peter fails. He just completely flops in the same moment. The book of Revelation now is in a different setting. And it's trying to get people to follow the way of the Lamb all the way to the end with people who are more mature in their faith in some ways and who can uh, pave the way. Unlike Peter, although Peter learned, obviously. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. Yeah. I loved your, your use of the word allegiance. Um, you say that the word faithfulness in, in Revelation can often be translated as allegiance and actually fit John's message better. Um, so, what does allegiance to the Lamb mean to you? What do you mean with that word? Yeah. Uh, the normal one translation would be faith or believing, trust. Uh, but uh, Teresa Morgan, uh, a great scholar at Oxford University, wrote about faith in the ancient world, um, and especially in the Greek language as well, demonstrating that the term often means sort of a faithfulness, and it's mm -hmm. so often connected to, let's say, political authorities that it becomes the sense of allegiance. And then Matthew Bates has written like four books on this. He keeps saying this. He keeps, he's a friend of mine, but he keeps kind of twisting around and keeps saying the same basic message from different angles. And I think that this is a very important contribution to our understanding of faith. Hmm. We, I grew up where faith meant accepting Jesus into my heart. That's, that was, that's what that's I, faith. I also came from. Yeah, that's faith. That's to believe. Mm -hmm. 
Well, faith in the New Testament, faith in the Bible, Amuna in Hebrew and Pistis, Pistuo, etc. in the New Testament, is not singular is not simply or singularly that initial act of trusting Jesus to be, let's mm-hmm. say, your savior and to surrender your life to him, but it is also a description of ongoing faithfulness. And so I've translated the New Testament. It's coming out in June, called the Second Testament. Correspond awesome. to John Goldingay's the First Testament, InterVarsity, and uh, I did everything I can with most b- words in the New Testament to use the same English word for the same Greek word. So if people are actually paying attention to those sort of niceties, they'll find a consistency in my translation. They won't find, say, in the NIV or the ESV, or you know, they're more dynamic. But when it came to pistis. I had to make a decision that I couldn't do that. And it was one that I had to surrender my basic principle <laughs> on. And I moved between, let's say, trust and the faith and allegiance. But I think you will discover, and there are times when you can't tell. And so sometimes I just said, it's either going to be uh, trust or allegiance. And I just said, it's time to pick trust. Uh, because mm-hmm. I wanted to balance this out as much as I could. And I, I don't think at times you can tell. But um, I think you'll find a lot of uses of the word allegiance in my translation. And it it really is sealed by the fact that in the New Testament, the Jesus in whom we trust is the King. He is the Lord. He's the Son of God. He's the Son of Man. And these are all terms of, of like, theopolitical rulers in the world. Yeah. Uh, and so we make a commitment that we will be allegiant to our king. So the word hmm. trust or believing in king is not quite the same. It doesn't work quite as well. This yeah. is what Teresa Morgan and Matt Bates have both emphasized, that when you connect the word pistis to someone who is a king, the word is translated allegiance more than it is translated, say, faith or trust. So what you're so. saying is that it's looking at that word and, and saying it's less about, you know, I'm going to have my, my hope in Jesus, but it's more like I'm going to be dedicated to, I'm going to make sure that I am faithful to in all my actions yeah. to the king. Yeah. And mm-hmm. in the book of Revelation. But that requires a lot of work for me, Scott. I don't know if I like that. <laughs> I don't know. Well... That's what life is, you know. It's yeah. a lot of work. So it's a daily decision. You know, Luke glosses, I think, Mark's version, uh, you know, pick up your cross and follow me. And he adds daily, you yeah. know, pick up mm. the cross daily. Wow. And uh, and that's the, the whole idea is right there. It's that we follow Jesus daily. And it's it's when we... It's when we get up and how we relate to our spouses, and it's it's when we see our neighbors. It's it's everything. It's mm-hmm. our children. It's our church people. It's our politicians. It's how we watch TV. It's which baseball team we cheer for, the Cleveland Guardian. Uh, <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't know. That might. Mm. <laughs> my my son is the senior scout for the Cleveland Guardians, so we are Guardian fans. Very cool. Very yeah. cool. I am so awesome. far outside of the sports world. I, who are the Cleveland Guardians? 
They used to be the Cleveland Indians. Oh, the American I, League. Yeah, I I approve of that change. Okay, three there three years down the road, they've been they've been called the Guardian. So that's okay. That's okay if you don't watch baseball. As long as you don't cheer for the Yankees, I don't care if you watch it or not. <laughs> Deal. If you've got family involved, you're allowed to cheer for the Guardians, I guess. Um, so, so let's shift gears a little bit. What, first of all, what a beautiful picture of mm. of what it looks like to follow the Lamb. But can we shift our imagination towards um, the the evils of Babylon and yeah. the dragon and the wild things? Um, what are some things that our imagination should conjure up when we think about the those those evils in our world? Well, uh, Nick, I, I I teach my students, uh, be, especially those who have been, who feel like they've been abused by this book or by, by mm. youth pastors who scared the daylights out of them uh, with this Apache group. helicopters. <laughs> Do you ever hear that? I, I've heard of B-51 bombers, uh-huh. uh, B-52, B-51, whatever it is. I, I remember being uh, in middle school, remember. sitting in a, in a study, being told that like there's some sound uh, that was like the... Oh, the, the, the galloping of, of hooves. Yeah, that's that's what it was. And told that that was um, the Apache helicopter introduced into the Vietnam hmm. War. I remember that. Now, like now like we it was have yesterday. Dro- now we have quiet drones, so it's not going to work. Did. It's not. Um, <laughs> didn't didn't work out. I tell I tell my students that when we read the Book of Revelation, we begin in chapter seventeen and eighteen, not in chapter one, hmm. because. Until they understand the problem that is facing or oppressing or swamping the churches of, of Western Asia Minor, which hmm. is only described in the book of Revelation in chapter 17 and 18, um, you can't understand what's really going on. So we begin with the vision of Babylon, of the whore of Babylon, the the prostitute of prostitutes, you know, mm-hmm. the, the embodiment of evil, and it's a description in some ways, a parody of the goddess Roma in, um, mm, in interesting. Rome. Um, but what we see there is, um, and I tell my students, it's pretty easy. If you just read that chapter 17, it bleeds into chapter 18. But if you, if you read chapter 17 and list the major, let's say, five to ten major characteristics of Babylon. It's Babylon, and Babylon means Rome in the mm-hmm. book of Revelation. It even means that in First Peter chapter 5. Um, right. So I ask, I ask them, what are the major characteristics of Babylon? And I, you know, I've come up with seven because John has so many sevens, but you could probably find eight or nine, but I'm cheating so that I can yeah. use the numbers in, in John and combine things. One is is that it is idolatrous or anti-God. And, and for a Jew, for a Christian, the gods of Rome, Roma, Apollo, uh, all these gods that they worship, these are idols and they're false gods. And for many of them, they're not even gods. Uh, so... This is a big issue with with Rome, with Babylon for the for the uh, Book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. Second characteristic is opulence. The way the woman is dressed is mm-hmm. over the top with opulence. Well, this is a characteristic of especially the elite 
the high status people mm. of the Roman Empire and the money that they have. And I mean, in some ways, you know, it's not like the, there's a taxation system, but it's not like the taxes go to the to the city. The, they go to the emperor. Yeah. And the emperor right. has all this money, and then he disperses it to the people that he wants to have it. Um, it's not like everybody's entitled to the same amount. This isn't um, manna in in the book of Exodus. This is instead the uh, non-distribution, the non-redistribution, the exploitation of opulence hmm. in the Roman Empire. The As you're going through is, these, Scott, yeah. should I should I be? Because this is what I'm doing, and I want to know if I'm if I'm right on the right track, and I want to know if our listeners are on the right track. Should I be thinking about modern day equivalents of these as well? Very good, very good. Yes, we <laughs> okay. should be. All right. That's what. Okay, so here, uh, Zondervan was very kind. They made uh, for some people. They only made a few of these um, keychains, leather keychain strap on the keychain, and it says. On the keychain, Babylon is timeless. So mm, this is one yeah. of the big things. Babylon is a trope in the Book of Revelation mm-hmm. for imperial powers that oppose God and oppose God's people. So yeah. yes, it's it's murder, but it's murderous. Is that it kills the people of God? And so there's mm. there's a scene in Revelation 17 of the martyrs who've been killed by the powers. A fourth is they're they're very conscious of their image. Everywhere you went in the Roman Empire, and you can still see this if you go to Ephesus, if you go to Rome especially, uh, if you go to Corinth, if you go to Philippi, these are the major archaeological sites I've been to for the early churches. You get into those cities and you realize from the archaeological discoveries in the museums just how... Uh, conscious Rome was of its image, and it conveyed mm. this constantly uh, by the dress that people wore, by the shoes that they wore, uh, by the people that they hung with, uh, by the colors that they used on their clothing. All of these were marks hmm. of status and image. And then nobody failed to notice because it's the very essence of the Roman Empire, the military. Rome was militaristic at the highest level. In fact, the emperors were military victors. And Constantine, who in many ways, for many people, baptized the Roman Empire into the church or the church into the mm-hmm. Roman Empire, he was right. a bloodthirsty, victorious uh, yeah. commander. I mean, this is this is how you became a political leader in the Roman Empire sure. was to lead victories and come to Rome with the sword in your hand, uh, in, yeah. you know, in his fist, I guess it is in the song. And then uh, uh, it is full of economic exploitation. One of the most searing images is how all these other countries that, the, that Rome had conquered were bringing all their wealth, their possessions, their resources, their products were all flowing toward Rome. Everything moved, all roads lead to Rome, but yeah. the waters, all the boats led to Rome and up the Tiber River so mm. that they could uh, just unload and unload and unload because of exploitation. And then, Which again is back to that, that imagery in the book of Revelation where we have all the ships coming into the harbor yeah, for, yeah, for, okay. 
That's I'm Revelation 17. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then one of the characteristics of Babylon in Jeremiah and in Isaiah is arrogance. It's sort of uh, nobody's going to do anything to me attitude. We own the world. We're the greatest. And um, mm. arrogance dominated the Roman Empire. They believed they were the greatest place on earth. And that desire for greatness. So every one of these images, Phil, needs to become a hermeneutic of discernment for Christians in our world today so that they can observe the political process in our world and discern where it's like Babylon and where it's like New Jerusalem. And so I need if, you, we are, uh, if we are honest Americans, every political government is more like Babylon than New Jerusalem. I, I was actually going to say something similar to that. But I, I need you to help me thread a needle here, okay? So part of me is, is totally on board with this, you know, because it's discernment-based, right? Seeing the world and understanding it, how it relates to the, the Babylon that John is describing here and, and, and where, therefore, I can understand the characters and behaviors to lean away from and, and to lean into being a part of the kingdom of God. But there's this part of me that's from those days of hurt, right? Like when I, when I was given the whole collection of the, the Left Behind for Kids books, you know, and that, that also doesn't want to get even close to seeing the Antichrist and everything, seeing the dragon and everything, you know, um, I, 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 and I don't mean to be ultra controversial, but I even say, you know, when, when vaccines or medications come out, the immediate, you know, assumption that these are satanic in nature. So how do we develop true discernment and wisdom versus um, leaning into fear that the Antichrist is everywhere? Okay, this is Phil. This is the perfect question for for this book. This is what we have to learn to discern is not the fulfillment of some prediction in, let's say, something Biden is doing or something Trump was doing or something Putin is doing, but the characteristics of empire at work in Biden, Trump, Putin. And that we as Christians need to avoid at all costs aligning ourselves with a political party. Because Mm. when we do that, we surrender our capacity to speak apocalyptically and prophetically into our political systems in such a way that we're not, you know, I mean, it's very common for me as a blogger. Now I'm on Substack, so I guess that's no longer a blog. It actually is. They don't even want it to call a newsletter, I don't think, anymore. But if I say something negative about Donald Trump or Joe Biden, Mm -hmm. people will write me and say, I did not know you were a Democrat or I did not know you were a Republican. And and I I want to say to them, well, just you just keep reading and you realize uh, I'm an equal opportunity critic of <laughs> politicians because I want to discern Babylon when Babylon is present. Hmm. Hmm. So, 
in, instead of it seeing it as prediction. So in other words, uh, Phil, I would say, please do see Antichrist present. Mm-hmm. Not in everybody and all the time, but in, yeah, yeah, yeah. in certain processes. And don't be afraid of that. But it's not because this person is the predicted Antichrist of the beast of Revelation in chapter 13. Hmm. Uh, instead, it is a clear resemblance to the, the those kinds of powers that oppose the work of God in our world. So uh, the key is to keep it away from predictive prophecy and keep it at political discernment. Hmm. Yeah, I think with a with a laser focus on the lamb and with, like you said earlier, allegiance to the lamb, um, the, the antichrist and the dragon and the beasts and the wild things are no longer the main characters. We don't have to worry Mm -hmm. about predicting, predicting them because they're not the the main characters of the story. The main character and the victor is the lamb. And when our eyes and our attention are, are solely focused on the lamb, as we walk in the way of the lamb with allegiance to the lamb, um, discerning the dragon and the wild things becomes um, almost just things to avoid, to continue laser focus, allegiance mm-hmm. to the lamb. Um, and I think part of the, the speculation strategy puts way too much oh. emphasis on the on the dragon and the wild things um, when, when allegiance to the lamb should be where our laser focus remains. You know, the um, an interesting point you make here I think is true, and that is the more we focus on the lamb the higher our capacity to discern the dragon right Mm. Uh, because we will know what the lamb's rule looks like Uh, and when we see uh the dragon or when we see in our political systems things that are unjust and unfair we'll we'll see it immediately because we know what good is we know you know i i use the word tove of another book that I've yeah. written. Uh, be, those who know Tove are the ones who recognize evil, Ra, uh, the easiest. Yeah. Those who know the lamb recognize the beast the best. Hmm. So what you're tweet saying is... That. <laughs> tweet that. We'll do. Uh, <laughs> so when we are, when we're focused on the lamb, we are given, you know, we, we can develop the discernment to identify the works of Babylon even today. And when our allegiance is to the Lamb and we act in accordance with that allegiance, then we'll also really be countercultural and we'll act against the culture of Babylon and we'll even be able to call it out because our allegiance won't primarily be to a political party. Am I on track Exactly. Totally. That's exactly it right there. And we have a major, major problem in the American church today of people aligning with political parties. Yeah. Hmm. So let's... I loved the phrase that you quoted Martin Luther King um, as calling Christians transformed nonconformists. Hmm. I love that that phrase, that way of yeah. thinking about Romans 12, right? Yeah, yeah. Lisa Bowens, uh, who's a professor at Princeton, pointed that text by Martin Luther King out to me. And I, I awesome. read that sermon or talk whatever it yeah. was it was amazing it was an amazing talk yeah i want to as we're kind of ending our time here scott i want to i want to make a shift um but i but i think it's right in alignment with where we're already kind of going you know our focus is trying to understand like how do we take these larger conversations and and then 
I am notorious for accidentally getting caught up on just, I enjoy understanding, I enjoy academia, I enjoy just the, but I want to live these things out. Like I want to, I want to have them boiled down into practical applications as much as possible. I don't think everything can be boiled down that far, but when we can. Um, so when we say that our allegiance should be to the Lamb, and that the that at least in large part the Book of Revelation should draw us to that vision, draw us. To, what are the actions of a twenty twenty three American? And I think you started to hint to them, but but I, maybe kind of getting into more directly. What are the the actions of a twenty twenty three American that that demonstrates an allegiance to a Lamb, the slain okay. Lamb? Three Ws. The first one is just going to summarize what you said. The way of the lamb, the way of the lamb involves witnessing in word and in deed to the lamb and worshiping Mm. the lamb who is on the throne. Okay, let me explain. Witness is a major word in the book of Revelation. Martus is the Greek word for a witness. It becomes martyr in... uh, in uh, English eventually. And martureo um, is the verb. And to witness in the ancient world is to see something or hear something and to witness to what you saw or heard. John is a witness. Jesus is the ultimate witness in the book of Revelation. He is the faithful and true witness. Okay. But it is also something not only that you saw and heard and you are a, you testify to it or you witness to it, it is also something that you embody in the way you live. So Jesus mm. becomes a martyr. Uh, mm. Other people become martyrs because they follow the way of the Lamb in the context of opposition that leads to death. Mm. Now, what is what dominates the Christian life in the book of Revelation, oddly, is chapter 6 through 16 are those visions of judgment that really stimulate the dispensationalists in speculating all kinds of things. What's going to happen to the earth when a third of the moon and the sun don't give its light? And, you know, all the photosynthesis starts to dry up and now we got big problems. Um, it, these, those, those 10 to 11 chapters are frequently interrupted, as is it starts in chapter 4, are interrupted by songs. Now, Brian Blount, a, a wonderful African-American scholar, and I think he's in Virginia in New York City. Not sure where he lives now. Brian Blount has a beautiful commentary on Revelation, and he also has a little book called I Need a Witness. He's an African-American who taught me to see the songs of Revelation not as hymns in a hymn book, but as spirituals being sung by an oppressed people. Mm -hmm. When we look at the book of Revelation songs and realize that they're singing this song when they are nothing but a meager minority in myriads of Romans, you've got to say these people have got a lot of chutzpah. They're either crazy or something's going on here that they think that their their lamb is actually the ruler of this world when n- not a chance. LOL. Yeah, Rome all killed over, him. <laughs> you know, all over the graffiti in Ephesus. Jesus mm-hmm. is the Lord. LOL. All right. Then um, 
And I, I believe that it is in singing those songs that the conversion of the imagination begins to occur in the Christian life. Worship and witness are the two dominant practical living features of the book of Revelation. Of course, it means daily obedience and all these normal things that people would live. But the emphasis is for us to become witnesses, and we become best witnesses when we learn to worship the Lamb and let that completely reshape our imagination. Scott, we are grateful um, for your time and, and for your witness. You know, I was talking to someone, I was, was kind of, maybe I was bragging, I was very excited to, to be hosting you today. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it, it's just amazing the, you know, showing that person some of your work and, and just the amount of work that you've invested into the kingdom of God um, is something to, to be honored. And we're grateful for it and really grateful for your time today. So thank you for the work you have done and are doing. And thank you for sharing your wisdom with us today. Thank you very much, Phil and Nick. Be with you. Great to be with you. Thank you for joining us on the Living Room Disciple podcast. And we're hoping that you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Scott McKnight as much as Nick and myself did. Especially really leaving with the takeaway that we are to keep our faith on the Lamb as well as our allegiance to him as well. You can check out Dr. Scott McKnight's new book and his substack in the description below. Thank you for joining us on Living Room Disciple, where discipleship finds a home.